And to us, everyone around us seems more important and more grandiose and has so much more impact or such a, a more interesting person or whatever you want to define it. In kind of our social media age, it's really easy to look at kind of the veneer that people put out there and to immediately compare it to the reality of our life and, and sometimes struggle to understand that what we see isn't necessarily the reality. It's a projection of, of whatever it is that the person's putting out there. Hi, welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast about the impact of comics and pop culture on life and society. From deep in the heart of Texas, I'm your host, Kevin, and I'm joined by my good friends, James in Kentucky. Hello. And Sean in Indiana. Hello. Uh, tonight, we have uh, the honor of a special guest, and I'm going to let uh, James introduce him. All right, we've got Philip Seavey here tonight. And Philip, did I pronounce your last name right? You did actually. Well done. Okay, awesome. Because <laughs> because I never do that right the first time. <laughs> uh, Philip broke into comics through Top Cow Talent Hunt and went on to illustrate such Top Cow titles as Witchblade, The Tides, and most recently The Freeze. He's predominantly known for his long run drawing Tomb Raider comics with Dark Horse. He co-created with artist Drew Zucker and wrote the horror series The House, as well as writing and drawing Paradox, a time travel one-shot published by Source Point Press. His newest project is Triage from Dark Horse, a creator-owned sci-fi action series that he is writing, penciling, inking, and coloring. The first issue is already out, but if you find him at a show, he'll give you a promotional trading card from the series. In addition to drawing and writing comics, Phillips has been teaching comics since 2013. First with a long stint teaching at Broadview Entertainment Arts University and now Comics Experience. He obtained an MFA in sequential art from SCAD in 2012. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it and looking forward to talking. Yeah, thank you. Can I just say real quick, James, will you record an intro for me that I can play at the beginning of every one of my classes? <laughs> <laughs> I will. Like, that was just spectacular. Yeah. Well, I had uh, big help from uh, Philip with that. He sent me all the work with it. So okay. I, think, I think we're good. I just like the way you read it. It was very sincere, but also like... <laughs> like he's number one in your heart and number one in your playbook right Philip <laughs> i need to get some theme music to go along with bio introductions like if you had oh. if you had wwe like intro music like the glass breaks exactly oh <laughs> yeah it'd be great to like replay this whole thing again we'll have some inspiring music playing while james is reading that yeah yeah. You get video of me running into a crowd shirtless and everyone's cheering. It would be great. <laughs> if there was video of me running into a crowd shirtless, it wouldn't be mostly the video of the crowd running away. <laughs> right. And it would be great. I didn't specify what type of great. It yeah, right. Just that it'd be great. <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> Oh man. So, well, 
Philip, thanks again for coming on the show. So as you probably know, this podcast is about comics and life and society and what kind of impact it has on us. And so the first question we want to ask you on this episode is uh, what drew you into comics in the first place? Um, you know, I kind of was uh, doomed from birth uh, for comics. Like the first memory I have as a child, I was two years old and my dad gave me uh, Secret Wars action figures. He gave me an Iron Man and a Magneto. And that's the first thing I remember. So pretty much from then on out, it's been comics have been something I've loved in my life one way or the other, be it animated cartoons as a kid or action figures or getting into comics. And it's just kind of carried on throughout the 30 some odd years I've been around. Uh, I'm sorry. You should be. <laughs> I was looking at Philip's Twitter page and <laughs> oh, I, got, no. I got lost. Okay. Um, so Philip, you write and you, and you draw and you, and ink and you do all the, the art for uh comics. You, you kind of wear a lot of different hats, uh, in the creative process. Like what's that like for you? Um, that's a really good question. And it's kind of changed. Um, as my career has gone on, I've, I've added different things. I started out just penciling and inking. And then with the freeze, that was the first time I was able to kind of color myself. And then with things like House and Paradox, I've had some published writing credits. So taking triage on um, is the first like large scale project where I've done everything. And to a degree, it works in a similar linear production line process that regular comics do. Like I wrote my outline and got my scripts all done before I started in and to the art. And from there, I'll pencil and ink a page before moving to the next one. And then once all the pages, the line art's done, I'll color it. So that, you know, is fairly straightforward. But what I find while I'm doing all of this is I'm constantly working or reworking other aspects of it. So as I'm penciling or inking a page, I'm reworking dialogue from the script. And as I'm coloring it, I can go back and rework art or rework the stuff that I've written again. So even though it runs kind of like uh, fairly linearly, there's also a circular nature to where I'm constantly thinking about every aspect and reworking them regardless of which part of the process I'm on. So it's uh, straightforward in kind of a curvy, windy way. Do you ever do you ever find yourself like investing a lot of time into an idea? I guess you know translating script into art, and then have to have to scrap it because you feel like it it's not working. Ooh, that's a really good question. I'm trying to think if I've had an an experience like that with triage. Um, I know you know I I got everything written fairly solid and was happy with it, and I started drawing issue one, and then about like five or ten pages in. I took my scripts out again and realized it wasn't quite working. So I had to kind of scrap what I had written and then rewrite everything. Um, and I was able to kind of uh, salvage the few pages I'd drawn. Um, but for the most part, I think because I'm working on all aspects all the time in my head, um, I haven't had to, to stop and scrap too much. Um, other than just early creative stuff along in the process. Like I spent about uh, a month on all the designs for the book, like environments and characters. And I built loads of stuff um, in my design folder and reference and, you know, spent months writing the scripts. And so I think the time and kind of investiture into that aspect has helped me not have to go back and rework too much stuff while I'm doing it, thankfully, because it's taking me long enough to do the book. So <laughs> my editor doesn't need me to to stop and redo too many more things. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Uh, another follow-up question, just because I'm interested. Sure. The, are you like, do you like personality type? Or are you a perfectionist? Like you, you want things to be a certain way or do you, do you linger on them because you want them to, uh, because, because you want it to be perfect or is it something like you like, Oh, I like this. And, and then you have to, because you wear so many hats that you have to just decide to move on. 
Yeah, I think for all the years um, I've I've taught students and worked with people um, who are, are trying to get into comics, I've really preached the mantra of like done is better than perfect. I found, especially with students, they will spend forever trying to get something perfect. And it's like, you know, I, I definitely admire that. And there's a part of me that works as hard as I humanly can to get something as perfect as possible. But in the end, I know it's not going to be perfect. I know it won't be perfect for probably the rest of my life. So it's better to have a product that is the best I can do than something that I envision being perfect. That said, I'm spending more time on this book than anything I've ever spent and worked harder than I thought I could. So there is an aspect of perfectionism that goes into it, but also a reality that comics is a commercial industry and there things need to come out on certain schedules and stay on time. And, and that will prove sometimes a, a successful work. Um, something you want to spend 30 or 40 years perfecting, you can, but that's not exactly the industry that I, I work in, unfortunately. So, yeah. mm -hmm. Well, you kind of put into words the way that I feel in the new position that I have in my job. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a, I run the news broadcast for my, my junior high mm -hmm. and we have to have a news broadcast every Thursday morning. And the kids, <laughs> the kids like they, they start, it's the time where you start to teach and understand deadlines. And so yeah. I'm, I think next year, I didn't get t-shirts made for our, um, our kids like this year because our school is moving to a new building. Uh, and so, and we're changing names. So next year when we open the new building, our broadcast shirts are going to say done is better than perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm happy to pass that along. It's a, no, it's, it's a mantra we've come to live by. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, and from, from I, I mean, unless you're, unless you're in a business where that is a necessity, you kind of don't think about those things. If you're somebody that's a perfectionist and you have no time limits and you can wallow in it, then you probably spend more time uh, working on it than you should. But no, it's it's just interesting to see that the perspective because uh, I, I'm I'm a perfectionist and I have a hard time like letting things go until they're perfect. So, but I'm learning it too in in this new role because at the end of the day I'm the final editor, so I have to edit all the pieces of the news broadcast that the kids have shared with me, and then I got to I got to move it on down the road. So. Philip, to continue on what Kevin was asking you about being a perfectionist with your work or trying to perfect it, I imagine that as you're working on the story, just like any writer, what you had envisioned at the beginning tends to be edited and modified to improve the story. And so I, I can only imagine that when you were talking about being okay and being comfortable with the fact that it's not perfect, but it's the best story you can tell. I think because of that storytelling process, you have to be okay with adjusting what your idea of perfection means for the story because it's always going through some sort of revision process. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. Um, I know that I went through, worked on my outline multiple times and then multiple drafts of my scripts. And then I got together with a bunch of other friends of mine who are in and around comics for a big kind of creative retreat at the beginning of this year. And I handed them the five scripts and we were all kind of taking turns, giving each other feedback on whatever project we were working on. And, and I got to my turn and I got about an hour and a half straight of them just shredding my work to pieces. Um, and most of these people, we went to art school together. So we're very used to that, like intense critique of each other's work. So it wasn't, I wasn't attacked or it wasn't sad. It was like, okay, this is exactly what I need. But then it's like, okay, I got to go back to the drawing board and reassess what I had and like figure out, you know, take from their notes, understand what's working from their feedback, figure out like what isn't working or what's a personal feeling and that process of refinement and kind of sifting and filtering information and feedback, I think really helped kind of, um, 
punch up the scripts and get them into the condition that I wanted them initially. But like you said, you know, it's there's drafts and there's process. And as Ernest Hemingway said, the first draft of anything is shit. So it takes you just a while to kind of hone things down. And in the end, like like we we've said, I don't have a lifetime to write one story. So the next one, I, I'm excited with what we done with this one. I'm excited to write the next one. And you know, the next one is always going to be better is another motto um, that I've tried to teach and live. I'm going to add that to the t-shirt. <laughs> I'll give you a front and back there. So. The next one will be better. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, Philip, while we have you on here tonight, sure. I, I want to talk about uh, your new comic from Dark Horse, Triage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it was just voted by um, io as the best new comic this week. Uh, we're recording on September the 8th. And, you know, I've gotten to read this and it's just an absolutely amazing sci-fi story. And uh, I was just kind of wondering how that idea just came about for you and kind of how that story got started. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. So um, I think it probably might help. Let me give you give everyone who's listening just a quick overview of what the book is. And then I can talk about kind of um, how it came together. So like you mentioned, triage is a sci fi action adventure story. It follows Evie Pierce, who's our main character, and she is a nurse and she reaches a point in her life where she's accomplished all these goals that she set out for herself professionally. It's kind of how she always defined who she was. Uh, And then once she's accomplished these goals, she she realizes that that doesn't make her happy and she's very miserable. Um, And now she needs to figure out like, who am I if everything I thought I was isn't actually what I want to be. So in the middle of kind of this existential self self identity crisis, she wakes up in this psychedelic landscape and she's next to like a a brassy superhero and a hardened post-apocalyptic warrior. And they find out the three of them are, have been targeted for death by a being called the hunter. And if the hunter can kill all three of them, all existence ceases to be. So they have to figure out not only how to stay alive, but who they are in relation to each other and why they're so important. And it kind of sets off this big, really kind of fun cross genre, really big, uh, big world sci-fi stuff. So that's kind of what the book's about. Um, And it came about, um, my editor on the uh, book is Megan Walker at Dark Horse. And Megan was my editor on Tomb Raider Inferno, which was the last Tomb Raider series I did. And as we were wrapping it up um, last summer, she just let me know, hey, like, if you have any creator-owned books, uh, why don't you send them my way? I want to add some more... um, more creator-owned titles to the roster of books I'm editing. So about four days before San Diego Comic-Con, I had a, two different pitches with me or that I had ready to go. And I was like, you know what? I think I need just one more pitch in my back pocket because I try to go into bigger shows with a couple plans of depending on who I'm talking to, um, lining up stuff. Um, so I just... I, I had wanted to do a superhero book. I wanted to do a post-apocalypse book. I wanted to do a big sci-fi book. Um, I love soap opera-esque elements. And I just found a way to kind of put all of those together into one crazy mishmash uh, blender of an idea. Um, and I designed the three main characters. And I had like a rough just kind of paragraph that went over the the, the series. And I sat down and, and rambled it off to her. And she really liked it and somehow got the book approved based on just uh, an idea and a couple of drawings. And we, I'd never written anything for her. This is the, the biggest thing I've ever written. So she entrusted me with a lot and somehow convinced all her bosses at Dark Horse to let me run wild for a couple issues. And she had it approved in a couple of weeks. And here we are a year later. So fantastic. Awesome. Hmm. What's the what's the timeline process for you to to do this, uh, to do all of those steps yourself? Like I'm certainly you you must have turned in issue one a while ago and you're you're a few issues down the road now if, if they're if they're having to 
I guess, does it come out monthly or are you expecting to come out monthly or just maybe go into a little bit of that? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, coincidentally enough, the book was approved a year from the day it came out. So it was approved September 4th, 2018. Um, and right off the bat, I think it's another thing that I love about working with Megan and she was like, all right, when can you start? Um, I'm thinking we want to release it here. And she, I said, I, I can start writing it probably in a couple of weeks. I was in the middle of working on the freeze at the time, but I was just drawing that book. Um, and within like a minute, Megan had sent me like the most detailed spreadsheet in the world of like every date for every single piece of the process. And when we had a turn in, she even had like deadlines for the production department and the printing group and stuff that wasn't even particularly me. She's just very on top of the schedule. So I started writing it in October of last year. Um, I started art on the first issue in January of this year. Um, by then I had all the scripts done. And um, yeah, I'm in the middle of the fourth issue right now. Er early on, I was like, oh, I can get this whole thing done by like June, it'll be a piece of cake. And then the reality of designing this gigantic world kind of set in and it took me about four and a half months to do the first issue, um, just getting used to everything and getting everything going and getting that workflow. And since then, each issue has gotten faster. So um, yeah, it's a monthly book. Uh, the second issue is out the uh, October 9th. And then it's, I think it's every second Wednesday of every month until the five issues are done. So by the time I finish the last issue, I'll have been working on it for oof, probably 13 or 14 months. Wow. And do you have an idea of what you, uh, you have ideas rambling already in your head about what you want to move on to next or are you um, just waiting for, waiting for a, another opportunity? No. Yeah. So, um, Megan and I have talked, I think at San Diego again, this year was the next time we got to see each other face to face. Um, and we talked about a couple different plans or ideas, both, um, across a variety of things from creator owned books to licensed stuff, to working with different collaborators. We've got a couple things kind of in the pipeline and then just depending on, um, kind of how triage is doing both sales and reception have been really good. Um, and that will kind of help us give us the energy we need to get whatever we, we kind of want to focus on next approved. So there's nothing set in concrete right now. I'm just like heads down and nose to the grind until I get triage done. Cause it's a, takes quite a bit of my energy and focus to, to, to get it uh, complete. Awesome. Phil with triage, um, mm -hmm. I was able to read, you know, the couple of the issues. Um, and it, I, I gotta say, it's really fascinating. I love the idea about having in, and you can stop me if I'm saying something that probably shouldn't be sharing yet or anything like that. So if that's the case, <laughs> let me know. Sure. Um, but in the first issue, it starts off by showing the main character and the two other characters who have different names, but they're clearly the same people in different dimensions. And what I love about it is that it seems like it's setting up to show that Evie has a really important role compared to the other two characters who the other characters in the other dimensions are either a superhero or a post-apocalyptic war general. And so they're very powerful people. But again, this is the same person just in different universes. And Evie is this professional nurse who doesn't have that sort of fighting experience or anything. But I can just tell from the first issue that somehow she is special, which I think is really cool in general, because we tend to think that superheroes and and people who can really fight are really special because of those abilities but we don't necessarily think about how people have those um you know just everyday people have um you know a special place or special meeting in those things and um or special meaning in um in their place and in the world 
um, which I really mm-hmm. like that setup. And so I was just kind of curious, um, and maybe this is a two part question is one, if, if that was the intentional setup, if I'm just like really <laughs> reading into it. Um, but I'm also curious if, um, you know, if you had any sort of inspiration in creating triage, like, you know, either, you know, if there's people that you know, or um, where you got some of these ideas or thoughts from that helped you uh, write triage, it'd be really interesting to know that. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And yeah, that's kind of what I was going for. Um, and it's always, it's always nice when someone is, is picking up what you're laying down. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what the story is about, there's a lot of different ways to describe it, but it comes down to like this, that how do we identify who we are and, and using these different characters to explore uh, aspects of essentially the same person and to deliver a, a kind of a, a holistic idea of ways that we can approach understanding who we are and what we have to contribute to each other's. But I think by putting Evie alongside Orbit and Marco, the two other characters, it put her in a position that I think a lot of us find ourselves familiar in when we're looking at these people around us and to us, everyone around us seems more important and more grandiose and has so much more impact or such a a more interesting person or whatever you want to define it. In kind of our social media age, it's really easy to look at kind of the veneer that people put out there and to immediately compare it to the reality of our life and, and sometimes struggle to understand that what we see isn't necessarily the reality. It's a projection of, of whatever it is that the person's putting out there. So as I go through the series, I try to peel back the layers on uh, the other characters as well. And, and just like Evie, we know from the start kind of what, where her problems are, what she's struggling with. Um, I, I try to give us a little bit more insight into to both Marco and Orbit to kind of both normalize them and help Evie come to an understanding um, of, of who they are, but also who she is and what she can contribute. Can you share with us what, um, if there are anybody that inspired you that you wrote with the characters or um, maybe any source material or, or events that inspired you to, to write this story? Uh, yeah. Um, so my wife is a labor and delivery nurse. So I got to pull a little oh, cool. bit of real world experience from her. The opening page of issue one is from an incident that happened to her directly. <laughs> um, and for those who haven't read it, I'll just let you read the book to experience yeah. it. Um, but you, beyond that, I have two two events in my life that kind of uh, helped me inform at least the starting point of Evie. Obviously, Evie is not me and it's not a biographical story, but I liked, I, I can't write something without having an emotional connection to it. It's what keeps me motivated to, to work on something all day long, every day for at this point, you know, going on a year for this project, but then other ones is similar. Um, so I did not start my career out in comics. I started my career in corporate finance and I worked for Goldman Sachs for a couple of years um, right out of my undergrad. And um, with that, I, I, it was another thing where like I had gone to a really good business school and I'd gotten the job that I had set myself out to do. And as soon as I got there, I absolutely hated it and was absolutely miserable. And in, in process of a couple years, I had to, you know, it was a lot of self-assessment and self-discovery to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And comics is always something I had been working at when I was younger. And I, I shifted back and you know, quit my job and went to grad school and got into comics through that route. So that idea of arriving at a place where you thought you wanted to be and then realizing it's not what you wanted to be at all. That's part of what where I started Evie's journey. 
um, and just that anxiety and that frustration. Similarly, um, years later, and this is within the last couple of years, like I grew up a, a fairly devout religious person. And in the last couple of years had transitioned away from the faith that I grew up in. And that caused uh, a gigantic kind of loss of self identity, and not even understanding how closely attached uh, my religion was to my identity and how I defined myself. So in stepping away from that, I left myself, I found myself in a very, uh, very precarious situation where I just didn't know, like, you know, what is, am I a good person? Am I not a good person? Am I, you know, are the things that I'm doing right? Or wrong, like all the framework that I had measured everything against in my life was suddenly gone, and I was having to uh, reconstruct myself from the ground up at thirty some odd years old. Um, so those two instances kind of helped inform the character of Evie, who is experiencing a similar crisis um, in her own way, and and kind of those fears and anxiety um, are kind of like the emotional grounding for me as a as an artist or as a writer to explore those ideas. And and you know, it's a very different story than my own life, and I can't say the conclusions are all the same, but that's kind of inspirationally what what set the groundwork for these things and allowed me to kind of hopefully access things that are both. Um, relatable and personal and, and under and and the audience can and feel the authenticity of those. That's awesome. You're not the only one that's sitting on this panel right now that's had uh, issues with their with their faith and is still still working through that stuff. So yeah. we're prepping to do a, an episode or five, depending on how deep we get into it <laughs> on, on religion and comics very soon. So yeah, oh, I, I would love to I would love to maybe have you back and get your get your take on that. That would actually be really interesting. Yeah, I, I could talk for hours, hours and hours on stuff. Yeah, well, we got a, we've got an open Google Doc right now. We're jotting it down. Okay. Yeah, let me know. Uh, that would be, I'd be happy to talk about that. Yeah. What, what, uh, can I ask what faith uh, you were that you grew up in? Sure. I grew up, um, was a very devout Mormon for about 30 some odd years of my life. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. Now you have like long rock star hair, right? I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had long rock star here off and on for about the last five or six years, right. but yeah, <laughs> since, since you, you, but you were, you were Mormon, you were Mormon, you were, uh, you spent a, a long, a lot of your, um, adult life in Utah. Um, and you said just a mm -hmm. minute ago that you had, or at the, at the beginning, before we got started, that you had just come from uh, a con there in Utah. Would you tell, tell me again what it was, which, which, uh, Comic-Con? Sure. It was a Salt Lake Fanex, okay. which used to be uh, Salt Lake Comic-Con. Oh, okay. Uh, and do you, I wanted to, cause I go to comic cons a lot with my, with my family and mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you some questions about that. When, when you go to these events, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of be, being a writer, uh, an artist or creator, and then about how, how not just about how you interact with fans, but kind of like what it's like behind the scenes. Because one of the things that I really, really dislike about cons as, as they've become in the last several years that they, they spent a lot of time promoting the the celebrities that are attending the cons and not a lot of time um, promoting the creators. And I just kind of wanted to get your take on that. Sure. I, you know, that is definitely something that has happened as, as uh, comic conventions have become pop culture conventions in lots of places. Um, and I've been doing, you know, I've been doing shows as a, as a creator slash aspiring creator for the better half of, oof, eight, eight or nine years now. But I, you know, I started going to San Diego Comic-Con in 1997 as a teenager. So I've, I've seen a variety of shows and kind of the evolution. Um, and I think each show kind of has its own attitude and its own, um, like, things that it focuses on. So something like Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle is one of my favorite shows because even though it's a really big show and they do have celebrity guests, the celebrity guests are not even in the convention anymore. They're in like the hotel down and around the corner. Um, and it's very much an art 
and uh, and comics focused show. Um, same thing like Heroes Con is a very much comics focused show. And then you get certain conventions that are a little bit more like pop culture cons or celebrity autograph focused shows. And, and I think that's just kind of the nature of the evolution of shows. So I don't necessarily dislike those shows. I just try a little bit more to pick and choose shows that I go to that work more for what I do. Um, and I don't do tons of conventions. I do three to five a year at most. I mean, it's mainly like Emerald City, San Diego, New York Comic Con, and then a couple kind of in between, depending on kind of like what I can fit into my schedule. I mean, I, I love conventions. Um, I, you know, so I've been grow- going off and on to shows for oof, 20 years now, 20 some odd years. So yeah, and as a creator, it's, I, it's a very different experience than as a fan, um, but it's not a bad experience. You're just, you know, you're behind a table the entire time. Um, there's a level of, of energy and and um, positivity you have to maintain, um, which can be a little bit tricky because as, as artistic people, we're usually a little bit more wired for um, introversion. <laughs> um, so being in an experience where you have to be basically selling yourself at all minutes of every day um, is not impossible. But by the end of the show, I'm always just absolutely uh, emotionally drained. Like I've been pushing myself to be uh, more social than I, than I comfortably am for multiple days in a row. And it, you know, it takes a toll on your... Um, your energy reserves. But you know, at the same time, it's not a bad thing. Like I love to see, you know, when you're earlier on as a creator, um, you go to shows to quote unquote network. And the concept of what networking is, is weird. And it's ambiguous and amorphous. Um, But it's not the like, I walk into a bar or I walk up to someone's table and I shake their hand and ask them to network with me. Um, After a while, it just becomes uh, seeing everyone you know, in comics that you've known for five or 10 or 15 years, and you get to catch up with friends and meet new people. And everyone plays the have you met this person game as you introduce everyone you know to everyone they don't know. And it just um, that aspect of conventions is great because comics can be a very solitary um, industry and career where, you know, I'm, I'm here in my basement studio all day, every single day. And I see, you know, my family and the occasionally once a month or twice a month, I'll get out and see another human. <laughs> um, so conventions can be really re-energizing where you get to be around people who love the stuff that you love and do the things that you do and can understand the, the successes and frustrations of the industry. Um, so yeah, um, what are the questions you have there? I'm like, I could talk for conventions forever in a day, but I just don't want to get too rambly. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever cosplayed? Um, you know, I was, I was talking to, I had a cosplayer who set up at my table yesterday. Um, she helped uh, do reference modeling for Tomb Raider for me. So I had her come to the show and set up and, and, and whatnot. And we were laughing. Like I grew up in a costume from the age of like, whenever I can remember till probably like 12 or 13. And back then, like there wasn't really the same idea of cosplay to me. It was just like Tuesday, I'm going to put on a Cyclops costume and walk around. Cause you know, that was what we always did. My mom was a seamstress. And, um, so as far as like going to a convention in a costume, I don't know if I've ever done, but I was always dressing up as something as a kid. And, you know, back in the 90s or whenever it was, people had no idea what I was 24-7. So nowadays, everyone can recognize a, a Cyclops or something like that. But back then, I just got weird looks from neighbors. So <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But, and I got to say, Philip, you, you're probably um, helping perpetuate the stereotype that people who love comics are living in the basement somewhere too, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's bad. We're in the process of uh, moving into a new place and I'm moving my studio upstairs. Um, so I'm no longer oh, nice. having to say I live in the basement. So. <laughs> you, you graduated, right? <laughs> yeah, just trying to break that stereotype a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And having a view in Utah is, pro- is probably going to, like, you know, you might become more extroverted because <laughs> you can see the the great blue yonder out there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I've got a window in the uh, the my basement right now that looks up out into the sky, but I'll now be able to see the pretty mountains that I don't usually have time to do anything with, but I'll at least be able to see them. <laughs> right. Nice. 
Well, you know, when we started this podcast, Phil, I was actually recording in my bedroom closet. And <laughs> and now I have like an office space on the second floor. So I understand how you feel. It's like, you know, you're 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 moving up in the world, right? <laughs> yeah. Your talent demands uh upper upper level uh you know real estate. Right. Okay? So yeah. be proud. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So you've been teaching comics since 2013. I think you said it was, um, where were you teaching at again? So I was teaching at Broadview Entertainment Arts University, which was a okay, small art right. school in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so what was that like? Cause I can, I can only imagine like there's not a lot of schools out there that have a comics. Uh, I'm assuming it's a comics education program or something along those lines. Is that right? Or yeah, it was when I, when I started there, we were the only school like West of the Mississippi that offered a degree in comics specifically. So there's, there's schools that have lots of programs or certificates, but there really mm-hmm. is not too many that have like an actual bachelor's or master's in comics and sequential art. Right. Uh, what do you think is like really interesting or what makes that different than if somebody wanted to um, do like more of the traditional BFA? Um, you know, with comics are such a, a weirdly specific thing because you have to be good at all sorts of other aspects of, of art. You have to be a good illustrator. You have to have good graphic design and composition. You have to have um, understanding of perspective and architecture. You have to do visual storytelling that's akin to storyboards and cinematography. And then, you know, uh, figure drawing and dynamics and all sorts of things that go in together. So by having a degree that's specific to comics, it helps give you a little bit more more of a um, broader education that you need in order to ha- hopefully have your skills sharp enough um, to do that. You know, I went to SCAD and got my MFA there in sequential art. And I'm a big proponent for a comic for education when it comes to learning how to draw and doing these things. But I'm not necessarily um, a dyed in, you know, dyed in the wool uh, art school person. I don't think you have to go to art school if you want to do comics. I think the choice is, is specific to each individual. And it comes down to understanding like, how is your learning style? Um, are you one who can pick up a book? and and be able to break things down and teach yourself from a book? Do you need some sort of interaction with an instructor? Do you need some sort of hands-on things? And, and you know, I've been trying to break into comics, um, you know, it's off and on since I was about 15 years old doing portfolios and samples and things like that. And I realized after like a decade of trying that I was like, wow, I'm just not getting any better. And I think it's more so because of my learning style. I need someone to help break it down for me, at least to start. And then once you show me a couple things, I can take off. But I found myself spinning in circles. Um, so so yeah, getting an opportunity to work in an educational environment and to teach and help students has been phenomenal. And I've absolutely loved it and want to continue to do it the rest of my career. And I think, you know, for people who, who are asking themselves, like, should I go to art school? It really just depends on to like, well, how do you learn? Um, and is that the right type of environment for you? Because if you can do it without spending a lot of money, do it without spending a lot of money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Good. What do you think if like, if I had, if for like a 10 year old that, that I have that's very interested in becoming a comic artist or uh, a writer just wants to be in the industry somehow, sure. what advice would you have for somebody that's like in uh, you know, middle grades or high school that wants to get into comics eventually, what would, what would you have them do? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously reading comics is really important just to be, see what's going on. Um, but then the best book as far as art goes, and that is a good intro book is just how to draw comics, the Marvel way, um, by Stanley and John Buscema, like the, uh, the work in that book is so phenomenal and foundational that like any kid could start with that book. And that will just getting the principles of that book alone mm-hmm. down pat will, will put you in such a good position to push forward in your art education and get, become professional. So Philip, 
uh, Triage is a creator-owned project that you've done, and it's one of several. Uh, and then you've also worked on some license uh, material. I was just wondering uh, what you prefer to work on and, and whether or not you'd ever had an idea for a, uh, a licensed character and then spun that into something that was a creator-owned because you knew you wouldn't have access to those characters. Um, yeah, on the question of, of license versus creator-owned, um, license stuff can be super fun um, in that you're getting to play with iconic characters and things that you love And as a fan. Um, the downside to that, obviously, is you don't have control over those characters. And you, you know, when you're playing in someone else's sandbox, you have to play by their rules and make sure you don't do anything um, they don't want to be done to your character, which is totally understandable. So when you're working on creator-owned books, you have such a wider um, range of things that you can do and, and stories that you can tell. So there's a different level of creative satisfaction Satisfaction that comes with working on your own things, even though it's not perhaps as wide known or as recognized as a Lara Croft or a Batman. Um, and I think as far as coming up with an idea for, for a licensed character and translating it into a uh, kind of creator-owned project, I haven't had one directly yet where I've, I've started with one thing and then switched it over to the other. But a lot of times when I'm conceptualizing stories, I'll think in comic book archetypes and it helps to pitch that too. Like this is a story where this character who's kind of like a vigilante like Batman um, it helps at least give yourself a foundational framework to work from. Um, and then from there, you can flesh things out in your own unique way. But I mean, I think to an extent, just about everyone does that in, in when they're creating stuff. There's always touchstones that they're inspired by an existing pop culture that allows them to kind of elevate their material to something that's more original or unique. Very awesome. Very awesome. Uh, so, Philip, before we let you go, uh, let everybody know where they can find you and your work, uh, maybe online, social media, things like that. Uh, sure. I've got a, a main website. It's just philipcv.com. And then on Twitter, I'm at philipcv. On Facebook and Instagram, I'm at philipcvcomicart. And that's kind of the best way online to keep up with me, um, other than, you know, just uh, whenever my comics come out. Awesome. I think that'll do it for another episode of The Caption Life. I want to thank uh, Philip for coming on and talking to us tonight. We worked our way through a couple of technical difficulties, but I think we, we got some really great stuff check out triage it's in in stores now and the next issue comes out uh in, in october this has been the caption life you can find us on social media at caption life we've got twitter we've got instagram and you can find us on your favorite podcast platform uh until next time peace peace